On your first day in Italy, you'll see why this country is one of the world's most popular destinations. And you'll also likely learn the downside of all those crowds. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're venturing away from the crowds and learning about two lesser-known regions. Places where you can find all the ambience and beauty of Italy's more touristy locations, but at a fraction of the cost and with a lot more elbow room. Fred Plotkin is the definitive expert on regional Italian cuisine. He finds the highlights of Italian culture as much in its cuisine as in its great sights. Chasing Italy's best food gets you close to the culture while taking you far from the crowds. If you go to Freely Venezia Giulia, they are so welcoming because they're so surprised to see you. And two tour guides tell us how easy it's been for them to turn old farmhouses into dream homes. Think under the Tuscan sun, but in the less expensive region just next door. It's a bit like Scotland with the sunshine. Lesser known Italy is just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If you're looking for something new and affordable under the Tuscan sun, our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves might recommend you set your sights a little further to the east to see what a neighboring region of Italy can offer. Fred Plotkin joins us today to tell us why he thinks the Friuli-Venezia-Giulia region, or FVG for short, is about as good as it gets in Italy. And later, two tour guides, one American and one British, explain how they're turning old farmhouses in La Marche into homes with a grand view of the countryside of Italy. All it takes is a little bit of money and elbow grease, some good timing, and a little incentive from the Italian government. We'll finish the hour with a submission from one of our listeners, telling us what's special about her own hometown in the suburbs of Baltimore. Let's open up with your calls at 877-333-RICK as we explore more ways to keep our costs in line as we explore our world. Sharon is on the line in Kansas. Sharon, thanks for your call. Hello. My daughter and I have only traveled once to Europe, and it was with a tour group that was an educational tour. And we felt like we got a lot of bang for our buck. We went through five countries in two weeks and got to see a lot of the sites. And I, I was wondering what your thoughts were as far as when you're on a budget, if that's still the best way to go or if we'd be better off trying something on our own. Well, if you're on a tight budget, I think you're you're going to pay a premium to take a group. Uh, you know, you're paying somebody to organize it. It's profitable for them. Uh, you can make the case that when you take a group, if it's a good tour, that you get a richer experience and you accomplish more in a given amount of time. We take about 300 groups around Europe every year in my company, and you'd pay a little extra to, to take the tour instead of going on your own. But I figure people accomplish probably 30% more per day on a tour than they do on their own. Of course, the problem with a lot of tour companies is the more they promise per day, the more they will sell. And pretty soon they start promising what you really can't do comfortably, and you get going so fast. Bus drivers joke in Europe that they should just call these uh, pajama tours, like it's going yeah. so fast, why get out of, even get out of your pajamas? You're just seeing things, not experiencing things. Um, I think if you're on a tight budget, you should go on your own, and there's plenty of ways to uh, take advantage of budget alternatives when you go on your own. Uh, but getting back to the tours again, you know, tours are profitable because they talk 50 people into sharing one bus instead of having 50 people get train passes or cars. Right. That's a huge economy right there. If you want to take a look at the standard, you know, the big-name tour companies and think of how they can be a good value, remember, generally, the prices they charge are a nonprofit doorbuster price, and they make their money off of selling you sightseeing options and taking you shopping for the kickbacks over the course of your vacation. If you think of yourself as an independent traveler taking advantage of the bus tour for the transportation and the no-profit, comfortable American-style hotels that they offer, it can be a, a real good economic deal, uh, but then you're kind of doing it on your own as far as your day-to-day -day sightseeing and so on. I see. You took your daughter on an educational tour. Was that something put on by uh, the school, or, or what kind of educational tour? I actually it? work in a high school, and that's kind okay. of how I found out about it, and oh, yeah. a local group. Um, one of the other teachers in, in a nearby school and then a lady locally were combining groups, and I was able to join and be part of that. Did you go as a chaperone? No, I, I actually You were didn't. a paying member. I, I was. Yeah, because a lot of adults sort of scam a free trip out of these student things, and uh, there's no free trip on a student trip. You know, if they're giving adults a free ride, it's because the students are paying a lot. And right. uh, I'm a little bit offended by, quote, educational tour companies that have the um, blessing of the school district. Therefore, the parents, who are the consumers, just assume that it's a well-meaning, good-hearted thing. It's a huge responsibility if you're going to take students from America over to Europe. And I would hope that uh, school districts and teachers and parents look carefully into that experience and, and demand that 
these uh, guides and organizers are not just taking the kids shopping and partying, but getting a good, rich experience out of it, because it's just a beautiful opportunity for kids. Yeah, well, we really, really enjoyed it. It was it was our first time, and, and it was just such a wonderful and rich experience, and we're, we're anxious to go again All right. this summer. But next, in fact, my granddaughter is telling me that when she graduates, that's what she wants, is she wants to go to Europe with me, so we're already oh. kind of planning way ahead. Isn't that a great thing for grandma and daughter to do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think anybody who traveled well ever regretted investing the time and the money in that, that trip experience. And if you've got a chance to take your kids or your grandkids to Europe, well, my own experience is it'll change the rest of their life. I mean, I never wanted to go, and my parents dragged me over there. I was a 14-year-old with a bad attitude, and I got over there and realized, wow, this, is, this world's a much more interesting place than I ever imagined. <laughs> Thanks, Sharon, for your call. Well, thank you very much. And happy travels with your granddaughter next time around. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. And Erica is on the line in Pasadena, Texas. Thanks for your call. Yes, how are you? I'm doing good. Do you have a tip for our listeners about how you can travel smarter? Yes. My question to you, though, was whether a car is more beneficial or the public uh, system. Now, my theory is if you're in town somewhere and they have the L-Bahn, the U-Bahn, or what have you in Europe, it's always better to return your car earlier and take the public transportation. Oh, Erica, you're absolutely right. If you're in a big city, you never want to be having a rental car because the, it's so it's a headache to drive it, it's expensive to park it. The last thing you want is a car of your own when you're in Munich or, or Berlin or Copenhagen or Amsterdam. Turn the car in when you arrive to the big city, save a couple of days of uh, rental fees, and then hop in uh, the trolley or the subway or the buses or even take taxis, and you'll save a lot of money. Correct. But my th- I was going to ask you, did you find it since my husband and I love to go in the countryside? To me, that presents the local people. For a city, you have that in this country plenty. We don't really need that. But if you enjoy country life like we do, the mountains and what have you, um, what do you suggest would be the best way to get around? You almost have to get a rental car, don't you? Well, not really. Every place I've ever been that I write about is accessible by public transportation. Sometimes you have to be a little bit patient and so on. Uh, Uh And there's certain cases when it's more convenient to have a car. But I've found that the public transportation in Europe is really good. In fact, governments are committed to providing public transportation. I know, for instance, in Scotland, if there's not enough people to merit a regular bus connection between two villages, people in the villages are legally entitled to ride with the postman in the little postcar from village to village and just pay the bus fare because the government is committed to providing public transit for people who don't drive to get from A to B. You know, in the countryside, a lot of times I like having a car. It gives you much more flexibility and uh, ability to explore at will. But if you don't want to drive and if you want to take the public transit, you sure meet a lot more people with the public transit. You can always get from A to B uh, using the the train or the bus. Well, that is so interesting. Uh, I just have to tell you, we love your show, my whole family. And we get so much joy seeing the smaller places you go to. Well, that's where you get the most um, pithy little uh, exciting people-to-people experience a lot of times is when you get to the small places that are not so cosmopolitan and they, they welcome a tourist as part of the party instead of part of the economy. I think that's wonderful. Erica, I, thanks for watching, and, and yes. uh, I hope that you have continued happy travels. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing the show to us. I, I, well, where's Pasadena in Texas? What are you near? We're close to Houston. Houston. Suburb of Houston. All and right. And you were in Houston just recently. I love to travel around the United States sometimes, too. <laughs> there you go. That's wonderful. Happy travels. Thanks for your Thank call, you, too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Email is at radio at ricksteves.com. Boy, these days we got to be sure that we get the most experience and travel fun out of every mile and dollar in our travels. And uh, if you've got some tips, we'd love to hear them. Kate's on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Kate, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi. Some friends of mine moved to Roatan, Honduras, so I went down to visit them for two weeks and just had an amazing time snorkeling and laying on the beach and enjoying white Caribbean sands at a very low cost. 
Roatan, R-O-A-T-A-N. Correct. There are three islands called the Bay Islands, and they are part of Honduras, and Roatan is the largest of three islands, and all three of them lie directly on the largest reef after the Great Barrier Reef. Wow, so there's good snorkeling then. Oh, it's just amazing, yeah. The snorkeler's paradise down there. Many people go there to get the license and get the license as well to become a teacher. Why is it such good snorkeling? What do you see? Um, it's amazing because you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go on a boat to the reef. You can just step off into the water, and you're on the reef already. Wow. So it's very easy. It's great for beginners. It is white sands and blue water, and you can just see people have gone to Hawaii. It's probably, I'd say, like 10 times the, the life and the coral reefs. And so you feel like you're swimming in a fish store. Exactly. <laughs> and things you just can't imagine that you're seeing, and it's, you're just and I understand you can 10 fly. feet off the beach. I understand you can fly directly to Roatan from Houston or Miami? Yes, Continental flies directly to Roatan from Houston, and it's the shortest, um, one of the shortest runways I've definitely landed on, so it's pretty wow. exciting. Now, do the cruise ships drop into these little paradises? Yeah, that has just started. Um, it is seasonal. They're trying to protect the reefs, and they're trying to have the visitors that come not to walk on the reefs because you can just walk directly from the beach onto the reef. So it's important right. for to spread the word to keep the reefs so people can come and swim through them. Kate, recommending Roatan, Honduras. Thanks a lot, Kate. Thank you. Katie emails us from Minneapolis, and Katie writes, Go to churches. I'm not at all religious, but the churches of Europe blew me away. Last summer, I traveled in France, the Netherlands, Italy, and Spain. I expect to be dragging my travel partner away from the cathedrals and the like. Instead, I loved the churches more than my partner. They're almost always free, cool, and incredibly beautiful. That's a good advice, Katie. Uh, the churches are the biggest buildings in town. They're very old. They're free. It's raining outside. You step inside, and it, it helps if you know a little bit about what you're looking at. For years, I would step into those cathedrals, and I would just think, wow, this is big, and it's it's old. It's older than anything in my town. And then I learned a little bit about Gothic, the triumph of the high Middle Ages. Step into those cathedrals, and they are really the triumph of the age. Uh, it's so exciting to appreciate the greatest architecture of the Middle Ages in those churches and the most wonderful Baroque churches and so on. And if you are a religious person, when you go to the churches, go there as a religious person. Uh, for years, I would step into the churches and just think of it as a sightseeing attraction. And then I realized, wait a minute, these are built to uh, facilitate worship. And you're welcome to go to the churches for a service or a mass. Boy, it just occurs to me, you can go to the greatest church in Christendom, St. Peter's, and you can take a flash photograph of uh, Michelangelo's Pieta, or you can actually experience a mass right there at the high altar under the greatest dome on earth. Two different ways to experience that wonderful piece of architecture. Next, we head for the northeast corner of Italy to see why Fred Plotkin feels it's one of the most underrated parts of the country. And later, two outsiders tell us how they're making a home for themselves in La Marque on Italy's east side by restoring old farmhouses. Italy must be one of the most multifaceted countries you could visit. It's the size of California, but every time you go to a different corner of Italy, you find different charms. Most of us travelers go to the predictable first destinations. I enjoy getting into a little backdoor experience in an underappreciated corner of Italy. And today I'm joined by Fred Plotkin, and we're going to talk about what he calls Italy's secret garden. 
This is a region of Italy north of Venice, right nestled in there between Slovenia and Austria, the far northeast corner of Italy, a region called Friuli Venezia Giulia. Fred Plotkin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pronounce the region for me, please. Friuli Venezia Giulia. The name comes from Julius's forum, Forum Iuli, Friuli, and because Julius Caesar was there. So it goes back to Roman times. It's a yes. rich culture because if you think of geology, you think of tectonic plates moving around on the globe. And I like to think of cultures as tectonic plates also. And this is where three massive tectonic cultural plates come together, Latin, Germanic, and Slavic. All at that spot and all in the capital city of Trieste. Amazing. Now, if you have a hard time remembering this word, Friuli Venezia Giulia, just think the far northeast corner of Italy, and you can get there in an hour from Venice. And as a matter of fact, Slovenia is a whole other uh, discussion, but uh, there's a lot of connections with this region with Slovenia, and it makes a lot of sense to head north and then take a right turn and check out this region. Fred, when you talk about this region, you have so many ways to connect with the actual culture. One thing I, I love about your book, Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, of course, it's focused on food and cuisine and great restaurants, but this is your entree into understanding the culture. And you talk about how, for instance, in an osteria, everybody's equal. Titles are cast aside, and that's different than what you might find further south in Italy. There is a tradition in what I call FVG, FVG being Freely Venezia Giulia, that you have what's called a tajut, T-A-J-U-T. This means a small glass of wine. And when you enter an osteria, also called a frasca, you talk to anyone who's next to you. The discussion could be on any topic, although we try to avoid politics. Typically, Italian men, when they get together, will talk about politics a little. They'll talk about soccer a little bit more. They'll talk about their cars. They'll talk about their girlfriends. But especially what they'll talk about is what they're going to eat. That's always the main topic, what they have eaten and what they're about to eat. When you go to this part of Italy, you also have a tradition of gathering around the hearth. That would be another place, the Friulian hearth. Well, it's called the Fogolar, which comes from the Latin word focular, or focus. It's an area of Italy that can be cold in the winter months, and it's an area that has a lot of lumber, and therefore the people would build these hearths in their homes, and historically they would cook food in the Fogolar. And it would be in a room where there would be benches around the side, and you would sit there and eat facing one another, not at a traditional table, and maintain conversations and sing and tell jokes. And the family would gather around the fire, and there would usually be a pot of polenta hanging there, polenta being the source, the underpinning, the girder of all food in Freely Venezia Giulia. Now, in your book, you have a phrase that I, I really enjoyed learning about, and let me try to pronounce it, then you can give us an insight on how this relates to this particular corner of Italy. El vin bon, l'omo bravo, e la donna bella dura poco. Hey, 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 say that in Italian for me correctly, would you? El vin bon, el omo bravo, la donna bella dura poco. Oh. In other words, good wine, a good man, and a beautiful woman don't last long. You can make of that what you wish. But I think the part of the feeling in that, it, it's meant to be cheeky and jokey, but also the fact that the wine in this region is so fantastic. Uh. They make Italy's best white wines without a doubt, and among the best red wines, it's so good that good wine doesn't last long in that region. Hmm. A good man is hard to find, and a beautiful woman, also hard to keep. Hard to keep, all right. When we think about Italy, and you're famously a tallophile, you like all corners of Italy, seems like 90% of the tourists are gathered in 10% of, of Italy, and they sort of neglect everything else. Specifically, why is it good to go to a place that just doesn't have the tourist crowds? For many reasons. Because people I meet, and I know you meet as well, typically want to go back to that stretch of Tuscany, Florence, Siena, Cinque Terre, Rome, Amalfi Coast, and Venice, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I plead with them to go to other places because otherwise they just wind up with other American and European tourists. They go to places that are used to receiving tourists and treat them in a certain way. If you go to Freely Venezia Giulia, they are so welcoming because they're so surprised to see you. And therefore, they have not changed their food traditions at all to adapt to touristic taste. They are very proud of what they have in a quiet way, and they maintain the quality because the quality is for them. Hmm. So 
to give you a general rule, typically it's said that the three great food regions of Italy, of Italy's 20 regions, are Emilia-Romagna, Liguria, and Friuli-Venezia-Giulia. And the three great wine regions are Piemonte, Tuscany, and Friuli-Venezia-Giulia. So that means that it's the only region ranked in the top three in food and wine, hmm. making it distinct also because the people who produce wine make their wines to go with the foods. The people who cook food and add certain spices and flavorings do it with the intention of pairing it with certain wines. So the level of knowledge about food and wine pairing in that region is higher than anywhere else I know in the world, including France. Now there's a word, abinamento. Abinamento. Abinamento means how things go together well. They form a relationship. So... This region of Italy uses more spices in its food because the capital, Trieste, was always a major spice port. Liguria, the Italian Riviera, uses more herbs than any other region. When you have different spices, such as nutmeg, hmm. they will say, well, what wine goes with nutmeg? They find the Cabernet Franc goes with nutmeg. And therefore, if you're making a dish that has a lot of nutmeg, they tend to serve Cabernet Franc. And it goes on and on like this for every spice and every wine. They have many local wines, such as Rafosco, Pignolo, Ribola Gialla, that you don't see elsewhere that are lip-smacking good. They're so suited to food, and that's one of the many reasons I tell people to go there to learn how to pair food and wine. Now, when you talk about Friuli, Venezia, Giulia being one of the top three regions for cuisine in Italy, and then you think about it's so rich because this is where those three principal cultures merge, the Germanic, Slavic, and Latin cultures. I don't think of Germanic and Slavic as being up to the level of the Latin culture when it comes to great cuisines, but you're saying the subtle combining of these three areas with the traditions and ingredients and so on, it's a plus for the cuisine? It's a plus for the cuisine. There are so many misapprehensions. I wrote a book once called La Terra Fortunata, out of print, hard to find, but it's about this region and about how everything converged and the misapprehensions we have about it. So, for example, we tend to think of pork and sausages as being of the northern European world, Germany and Austria and Poland. Actually, they were created by the Romans. The Romans then found wonderful breeds of pigs in what used to be called Aquileia, their, their mm. home in northern Italy, and they taught pork preservation with salt to the people of that area who then transported it north to Germany and Austria. So the, the source material for making sausage and working with pork was Roman. Similarly, the use of herbs in cuisine actually came from the north, from Germany and from Austria, was brought down to Italy, and that happened all in Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. The Slovenians were very good at fruit growing. They're among the best fruit growers in the world. So fruit as part of cuisine and not just as something to eat at the end of a meal hmm. was brought by them to Friuli, Venezia, Giulia so that you have dumplings that are filled with apricots or figs or pears or plums or just heavenly. Whatever is the seasonal fruit goes inside a dumpling the classic dish of Friuli Venezia Giulia. So, I love this sentence you have in your book. Much of what is unique about Italy is its pursuit of pleasure and the skill of Italians to do just this. And when you think about Friuli Venezia Giulia being a crossroads, and you have that wonderful skill of pursuing pleasure, maybe it makes sense that you've got all of these influences coming across, and the locals there who enjoy good eating and good living are going to get the most of it. In effect, God put it here for us to enjoy. That's the thinking, and why not? I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're enjoying what God gave us, and we're talking with Fred Potkin. Fred writes Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, and it's out in its fifth edition. It covers all of Italy, not just the touristy places, with a real astute insight into the culture and the uniquely Italian love of life. We have Alice on the phone from Carlsbad, California. Alice, thanks for your call. Oh, I'm so happy to be talking to you and Fred. I love the Friuli region. Um... We love to go to Trieste, and we love Cividale uh, dei Friuli and Udine, and uh, we like to go to Muggia, too, which is right across the bay from Trieste, and uh, then we take the ferry over to Trieste and don't have to worry about our car. Now, Alice, connoisseurs of Italy and connoisseurs of Habsburg history love Trieste, or Trieste. Uh, why do you like it? Well, it's always 
sort of been like foreign intrigue, Trieste. I've always wanted to go there. And when we finally went there, it was, oh, it was quite interesting. I just love it. Well, a little background on that. You know, the Habsburg Empire was a huge empire with the capital in Vienna. As far as the Mediterranean is concerned, it had one little connection to the Mediterranean, and that was a little stretch of land there in Slovenia, and Trieste was the port. And then after they lost World War I, of course, they lost their port, and uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire becomes little Austria, and uh, Trieste goes back to Italy. Italy was separate from Trieste, and Trieste was part of Austria from 1361 to 1918. And it was the third most important city in the empire after Vienna, of course, and Prague. And then later Budapest came in. And remember the sound of music, Captain von Trapp of the Austrian Navy? There's no waterfront in Austria except the Danube. Uh He was based in Trieste. And it's a city that was the most important port for commercial goods, for products, for coffee especially, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's a very sophisticated city that indeed does smack of foreign intrigue. And Muja nearby is a wonderful fishing village just south of Trieste that's a little piece of heaven on the Adriatic. Now, sticking with Trieste for a minute, you call it in your book more cosmopolitan than Rome or Milano. Even now, 90 years after it's uh, lost its importance as an Austrian port, does it keep that cosmopolitan feel? It does. I was there in November of 2009, most recently, and the people love dialogues. They go to cafes. There's a lot of culture in the city and the streets. It's a city that has six religions coexisting, Catholicism, Protestantism, Islam, Judaism, Greek Orthodox, and Serbian Orthodox. And right around in that part of the world, people have fought about religion and differences for centuries. But in Trieste, they live and work together. It's kind of like New York. So a city with a, a thriving cafe scene, a city priding itself in being a city of ideas. James Joyce chose to live there for 12 years, you wrote in your book. even wrote part of Ulysses there in Trieste. And Dubliners, and he wrote all of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in Trieste. You know what's interesting for me as a travel writer? For me, there's no, like, obvious tourist site to write up like you'd have in Venice or Florence. But you have that rich, complex culture. And maybe that distinguishes uh, among travelers, those who don't need the Leaning Tower to get excited. They can go to Trieste and understand a little bit of the background that makes it such a rich place to explore and get to know. Its atmosphere. There's something called the Borgo Teresiano, which is a neighborhood built by Maria Therese of Austria that is like Austria on the Adriatic. But then you go behind it, and it's more of Italian and Slovenian style of architecture. Trieste loves evoking the old, and they have a streetcar from the 1930s that wends its way up into the hills to the Slovenian border, and you can go through forests and stop at the edge there and eat wonderful pastries from Austria and Slovenia and dine in a vineyard and then take the streetcar back down to the Austrian district. That is three cultures in one half a day. Beautiful. Alice, thanks for your call. All right, thank you. And thank you, Fred, for your book. I love it. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Fred Plotkin. There are a million guidebooks to Italy, but I think there's one definitive guide for Italian food culture. And it's Fred's book called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. To learn more about Fred's work, you can go to his website at fredplotkin.com, F-R-E-D-P-L-O-T-K-I-N.com. Fred, I'm always interested in how a hard history makes for an interesting culture. And when you go to Friuli Venezia Giulia, you find it's had a very tough history. How has that impacted uh, what you see today? Well, the fact that people have to hold fast to their identity and their culture when people are invading, whether it's Attila, Attila the Hun, whether it's the Romans, whether it's Napoleon who traipsed through there in about 1813, anyone who got there wanted to take the identity, the food, the wine, the products, the culture, the character of these people, and therefore they really decided to cling fast to it by preserving their culture, not so it's under amber, but so that it's a lively, ongoing culture. And the people, to me, are the best thing about the region of Freely, Venezia, Giulia, because they fought hard to maintain it. In May of 1976, they had one of the worst earthquakes in modern times in Italy. And I was living nearby. I was 20 years old. And I went up to the region to do first aid. And I stayed a month 
and I helped rebuild housing and, and things like that. And what struck me constantly was how generous the people were with me, how grateful they were, and how they would want to be more hospitable, but they couldn't because they had no house. And in Friuli, there's something called mal di maton, brick sickness, it means, the desire to build, the desire to create permanence and stability in a world that is always so threatening and unstable. So once the homes went right back up and they didn't wait for national teams to come in to help build, they built it themselves right away. They began to cook. They began to create again. Hmm. And they learned from the earthquake as they learned from wars what is the most essential aspect of ourselves. It's our culture, our language, our food, our sense that we may be mixed as races and religions, but we are united in our love of this land. And that is what makes this place unique in Italy, where Italians tend to be rather disputatious amongst one another from one town to the next. In Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, they're very united. And one of the most thought-provoking aspects of this underappreciated region of Italy is their hard-fought past and how it lives on today. And I'm, one example of that is Il Vino della Pace. Il Vino della Pace means simply the wine of peace. And only a people who have known war privation, suffering, and devastation the way people in that region have can have an appreciation for what peace really means, the absence of strife, the absence of suffering. And they make wine every year by combining grapes from many vineyards to produce this wine of peace that they send to world leaders, to the Pope. And they say to people, if you could sit down over a glass of wine and talk you would not be so inclined to do battle with one another because when you meet another person at a glass of wine, it's a moment of reflection and of sharing. And it's a moment of sharing the fruits of the soil, which are garnered through lots of labor. And if we can put roots in the soil and get fruit from the soil rather than spill blood in the soil, that, for a Friulian, is the way to live. And that's what the Vino de la Pace is. And I'll drink to that. We've been talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred's new edition of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler is more than a food guide. It's a guide into the Italian culture via its wonderful cuisine. Fred Plotkin, fredplotkin.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For our next stop, we head down the Adriatic coast from FVG, and instead of taking the highway inland toward Florence like most travelers do, we keep heading south into the region known as La Marche. It's quietly becoming the next big thing for people who want to find the less touristed parts of Italy. Our next two guests bought while the prices were low, turning their dreams of owning an Italian villa into reality. They'll tell us just how you can do it, too. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson di Nord Italia e abito in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. Under the Tuscan sun, you're in Provence, there's a whole genre of books sharing the stories and the struggles and the triumphs and the celebrations of people from Britain or the United States or Canada actually finding a, a fixer-upper in a charming part of Europe and moving over there and struggling with all the hoops and getting it all done and then living happily ever after, I suppose. We're going to talk about that right now. We're joined by Tricia Brady, who's from Glasgow in Scotland, who fixed up a house in the Marque, the region of Italy, uh, on the Adriatic coastline east of Rome, and Robert Pellegrini, who inherited a house in the same part of Italy, in the Marque, and is going through the hoops right now to do what Tricia already did, renovate it, fix it up, and have a beautiful spot in Italy to call home. Tricia and Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Now, Tricia, tell me your story. You, you're from Scotland. You ended up getting a, a fixer-upper in the Marque. I did. I ended up in Le Marque. I'm not quite sure why. It's sort of the third Chianti, apparently and uh, found a nice property, very rural. All the f local farmers are moving out. They don't want to farm. So why, where are they going? They're going up to the hill up near a town. So they're going to the city for employment and they don't want to work the land anymore? Oh, they're retired and they're too okay. tired to work because the Because when land. you travel around Italy and France and different parts of Europe, you find a lot of uh, abandoned farmhouses, basically. 
Well, that's what makes us quite welcome there because we go in and with, we modernize the places and we make the houses look good. So, so you actually feel that there is a welcome. They see these expats that are coming in from, in your case, Britain or the United States and investing in these run-down, abandoned rural farmhouses. Absolutely. And then we use all the local um, craftsmen and builders and they're happy. So now you finished your house in 2003? 2003, yeah. Tell us briefly the, the timeline of what you found and, and who you hired and how the renovation went. Um, the system works quite well with Internet nowadays. You can have a geometer who's also an estate agent, an immobiliare. So you buy the house from him. He sets up the contracts with local builders, if you wish. Okay, so you, you, this is like a foreman. You meet the geometer and he for, for 6% or something of the total cost of the project. Yes, and uh, it's like a foreman here. And then he knows the, the hoops to go through, and he negotiates with these craftspeople, and he does basically the headaches, and, and he little skims off the top. Is there an incentive for him? It, it sounds like there's a disincentive for him not to let the price go up because he gets a, a, a cut of the total price. You're given the price in advance. You okay. get what's called a pre- preventivo. So you so, sit down with this geometra, or I suppose there's an equivalent in other countries, and you tell him what you want. He'll tell you what it'll cost. You make a deal, and then he's got a budget, and he goes out and makes it happen. Exactly, and he's halfway to being an architect. Oh, okay. So that's what a geometra is. Well, that's nice. Now, Robert, you're at, at the beginning of this process right now. You inherited some property in the same uh, region of Italy, Marquet. Where are you at now in your process? I inherited this from my aunt in 2005, and it being an historic property, it was used by a pope as a hunting lodge, and it's a beautiful place. I decided to go through the rigors and the process of trying to have it registered as historic property. So that makes one jump through all the hoops and barrels of having to go through the process of getting the property uh, registered. Well, it makes things more complex because you have a historic property. Yes, Tricia, was your property historic? No. So you had it easier in that regard. Absolutely. I didn't have any of those problems. Now, Tricia, you've been at this now for uh, nearly a decade, and, uh, you know, you've got all these people with their, you know, gauzy dreams about under the Tuscan sun, and uh, you're in Provence. You've lived that dream. Is it, uh, is there a reality sort of uh, check where you realize this is more work than fun, or is it actually as good as you hoped it would be when you set out? It's better. It, it was never my dream, and it's turned into my dream. It's better. Mm. Why? Because I never really saw myself living in that sort of situation in such a beautiful house. I've always lived in apartments apart from my family home. And now I have a gorgeous house, totally restored. If somebody wanted to buy a, a real derelict fixer-upper on a nice piece of property in a less expensive region of Italy like the Marquet compared to Tuscany, ballpark, what would you spend in dollars? You can still pick up for about fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 Yeah. Without a lot of land. And then uh, invest a couple hundred thousand dollars to then, fix it up? Yeah, I invested a hundred thousand. And you got yourself a beautiful spot? Yeah. Wow. And you're part of the community? Very much so, yes. Speaking Italian with a Scottish accent? Speaking Italian, well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking fixing up a farmhouse in rural Italy. We're joined by Robert Pellegrini and Tricia Brady. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Kristen's on the line in Dublin, Ohio. Kristen, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, I, I had a question. Um, do they try to restore the farmhouses like to their original time period, or they try and modernize it, or a bit of both? And I guess you'd, I would think you'd want a modern bathroom and a modern kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, hi, I'm Trish. Um, my place is very old on the exterior, and it's all stone, limestone and sandstone, and inside we made it contemporary, and there's no restriction on inside. The only restriction is on extending the building outside. So they want to keep the exterior appearance uh, in harmony with the countryside. Yes. And I suppose, Robert, with your historic building, that's a big deal. Yes. Any type of inter- intervention that I want to do inside or out has to go through an approval process with this this agency that I'm dealing with. Inside or out? Inside or out, but especially on the outside. And, for example, if I wanted to uh, put a place a lean-to onto the building, I would have to ask them permission to do that. And they wouldn't let me do that because that would really interrupt the, the integrity of the building. Now, Robert, you inherited this property, and Tricia, you bought yours, and you're saying for fifty or sixty thousand dollars, you can buy a rundown place in the countryside of Italy. Is there any concern that you would get clear legal title? I've heard that there's a nightmare scenario where you could think you bought something, and then somebody comes out of the woodwork, and all of a sudden they claim it, and you're uh, in the Italian legal system, and you don't know what ends up. 
That's that's true. And the other reason it's good to have a geometer is that he will go through all of that process for you. And letters are sent and it's all checked out. So there's title insurance and you're, you're confident you've got this property. Yes. That's, yes. That's when you sure, finally make that exchange, they've contacted everyone who's anything to do with that property. Kristen, do you have dreams of uh, renovating some sort of a place in Europe? Um, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it sounds captivating. <laughs> it sounds interesting, doesn't it? Thanks for your call. Okay, ciao. 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 I've heard there's stories about European craftspeople and workers who are very proud of their work. At the same time, they've got local traditions that are quite hard to bend. I know the geometer was dealing with this, but I've got a friend who renovated a place in France, and he said every morning at 10 o'clock, the French workers would take a, a brandy break, and there's no way you'd get around that. Did you have any fun with your workers and the people who came in to fix your place up that was a sort of a cultural insight or yeah, a cultural you're right. challenge? You're right. You hear lots and lots of horror stories. But I have to say, in my experience, I was very, very lucky. I had old guys that were all nearly 70, and they did the whole restoration by hand, and they were there at 10 to 8 every morning and left at 10 to 6 every night. Really? In Italy? Fabulous. In Italy. Wow. And you must have had a good foreman or geometer. Well, I was overseeing some of the process. So. You were? <laughs> yes. Now, I've heard that there's a, almost a phrase in Europe that they'll, quote, take you for an American, meaning jack the price up. Have you encountered that? I mean, a lot of times in the United States, if somebody knows you're wealthy, they'll charge more. Do they just assume you're wealthy and money grows on the trees for you? Robert, when you're, you're into this situation and, and you're obviously an American, uh, is, that a, is that a challenge? That, that is definitely a challenge, and I think it's good to have somebody that you can have on hand as a person. In fact, I've got somebody who overruns my farm who calls himself my uomo di fiducia, which means my confidence man. And he is the one who's helping me uh, strike the deals with everyone that I'm working with. So he's negotiating with you, and he knows what a fair price is locally. And he's a great negotiator, and he's helped me out a great deal. And it doesn't matter if he's working for Bill Gates or Robert Pellegrini, he's going to get a fair price locally, you assume? Yes. Tricia, did you have that uh, good fortune with your geometer? I did. Um, It went very well. We were about 15% over budget at the end, which is what you really, I should think, really need to allow for. I would think 15% over budget would be a blessing (laughs) (laughs) for a lot of construction projects here or there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking restoring a farmhouse, in in this case in rural Italy, but it could be just about anywhere. We're joined by Robert Pellegrini and Tricia Brady. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Tom in San Diego emailed us, and Tom writes, I'm a longtime fan of the television show This Old House, and I've done a lot of home remodeling. But restoring a farmhouse in rural Italy seems especially daunting. What do local governments think of non-citizens coming in and doing this? Are the building codes and regulations as difficult to navigate as they often are here in the USA? Generally, what did the local government, uh, did they encourage you or did they put up roadblocks for you, Tricia, when Absolutely you did this Absolutely encouraged. No problems at all. You know, all over Europe, you've got this depopulation problem where people in the countryside are moving to the big cities. I know in France, there's even an organization called SOS that when a little village gets down to almost to the critical point where they don't have anybody to keep the shop open and the cafe open, the government will step in and actually encourage people and subsidize people to move there and keep that village alive. In Italy, they're recognizing the value of foreigners coming in renovating and invigorating the economy. Yes, I mean they're not they can't look back. You know, they they're keeping their properties in the countryside alive instead of ruins lying around there. And you're not an invader, especially these days with the uh, unification of Europe. You've got people of all different uh, nationalities coming in and contributing to the local economy. What about property taxes? You've lived there now for 5 years uh, or 8 years. What's the what's the property tax on a on a piece of property in the countryside of Italy that's worth a couple hundred thousand well, dollars? Well, it'll break your listener's heart because it's so cheap. Really? <laughs> yeah. I so mean, what, what I pay is it? 300 euros a year on my house. So you pay $500 a year for property tax to have a beautiful place to retire in rural Italy. Robert, do you know what the property taxes will be? In I'm actually a little bit lower because my, my property has been considered historic, so they actually put you in a lower tax bracket. So uh, when you inherit, in your case, or buy a, a piece of land that does have some historic protection built in, it comes with more responsibilities, but it also comes with more government help. Exactly. That's the pros and the and the cons. And the pros being that they aid me in the restoration process and that they're dictating how I go about doing this to, in order to bring the building back to its original condition. But possibly a greater pro is that they are providing a great deal of financial support. It comes with time, and that's that's the con. There's a long kind of waiting period, but eventually it, there's a payoff. Just coincidentally, both of you are in the Marquet, and I think 
you know, Tuscany is really popular under the Tuscan sun, really brought in a lot of interest. It's, a, it's been popular even before that. Consequently, uh, the demand would drive up the prices. You've got yourself in an affordable part of Italy, an underappreciated part of Italy, um, and both of you ended up in the Marquet. I want to remind people that's the area facing the Adriatic between the Apennine Mountains and the coastline there, one of 20 regions in Italy, and it's the region uh, less populated than most of Italy, basically east of Rome. Is that right, Tricia? That's absolutely right. Tell us, I know that you're a big fan of the Marquet. Uh, what's the charm of the Marquet? For me, the charm is, I guess, as a Scottish person, it's a bit like Scotland with the sunshine. It's green, it's mountainous, there are lakes, the sea is fabulous, and it's tranquil. There's one famous tourist destination, Urbino, which is a wonderful city. There's probably some modern resorts along the coastline because Italians just love to be lemmings on the beach worshipping the sun, and the interior is speckled with forgotten, sleepy, medieval hamlets. People talk about other areas, hill towns. The hill towns are... Hundreds of them in Le Marche. Robert Pellegrini, you inherited property in the Marche. Is that a curse or a blessing, and why? <laughs> I I would not want to live anywhere else in Italy. I feel this is an absolute blessing. My family is from the Marche, so I can relate to it. But at the same time, having grown up there and experiencing it from that perspective, I've seen the fact that it's it's an incredibly beautiful place and a very tranquil place and. A uh, very kind of original and traditional place still. And given how overrun most of Italy is, because, I mean, more tourists go to Italy I'm from the United States, I think, than almost any other country, and they all seem to go to the, the same 10 places. Nobody goes to the Marquet. You've got real Italy without all the tourist crush. Oh, it is a dream. Trish and Robert, let's say uh, a friend like me drops by in a few years and your house is all done and ready for guests. What sort of moment would you share with a guest coming to experience your wonderland? First of all, Robert... Well, I would be very, very appreciative to show anyone who's coming over to see my property because it's a beautiful place, and I would like to take you room to room uh, throughout the house, but also up above there's a nice woods. And in the surrounding area, we have a beautiful uh, Grotti di Fersassi, which is a speleological cavern, which is one of the largest in Italy. And in that area, a number of these beautiful, minuscule hill towns that are fortified castles that are unknown. And, of course, we're in the region that's well-known for a white wine called Verdicchio. Okay, so so it sounds like you're into the the culture as well as the history, and it kind of fits inheriting a historic property. Tricia, let's keep it simple. We're just in your house enjoying one of that local, a glass of that local white wine. What are we going to be looking at? We'd be out on that terrace, drinking the Verdicchio, looking at the Sibyllini Mountains, and seeing where we ski in the winter, or look the other way and see where we swim in the summer, to the sea. (laughs) Oh. It is a dream. This, this conversation has been enlightening, and I must say a little inspirational. Thank you so much, Robert Pellegrini and Trisha Brady, for your thoughts on restoring a farmhouse in rural Italy. Your own dream home might be waiting for you in some remote corner of Italy. Or it may be right where you already are. Besides sending us haiku about your travels, we also invite listeners to write us up a short essay about the place you call home and tell us why it's so special. Here's what a listener to WYPR in Baltimore has to say about her hometown. Here's what Cheryl Dunnigan of Catonsville, Maryland, sends us about her town. Recently, I had what I consider a highly typical Catonsville conversation with a friend of mine while hiking in Patapsco State Park. My friend is originally from Iowa and has lived in Catonsville for over 10 years. In some towns, 10 years is considerably long time to live in one house. Why, in other places, one might even be considered the old neighbor if one has stayed on the same street for 10 years. My friend might even be able to claim that she has put down roots. Not here, hon. Ten years is merely a drop in the bucket of Natty Bow that is Catonsville. In this town, the roots go deep and spread wide. Certainly commuters live here, but the soul of this place is about as far from a commuter town as a town can get. Ten years? Bah! That's barely enough time to crack open a beer and settle yourself on a bar stool at the local watering hole, Ship's Cafe. 
See that guy on the bar stool next to you? The one who seems to know everyone in the place? Of course he knows everyone. He's probably related to half of them. This guy, who is also now your new friend, is in possession of other pieces of information you might find very useful, such as A. He knows that your house is not really yours. It will forever be known by the name of the family that lived in your house for generations before you, the squatter, moved in. B. He knows that Ships is actually the old 828 bar in fancy dress. It's also likely that he knows every word to every Journey song on the jukebox over there next to the ladies' room, and he's not shy about letting you know about it. My advice? Listen to every word he says and file it away for future use. And make sure you remember this guy's name. If you stay in this town longer than one generation, you may end up related to him. Understandably, some who come to live here from far-flung places say five miles down the road, think we make a little too much of ourselves. Why do we insist on placing such importance on the 4th of July parade, acting each year as if the ink is still fresh on the declaration? Why is it when anyone asks where we went to school, we reply with the name of our high school instead of the name of the college we attended? Why do we allow ourselves to be packed like cattle into the dog run behind Ship's Cafe every Friday during the summer? just so we can say we drank beer outside. In the scheme of things, this place is no bigger than Dr. Seuss's Whoville, a tiny, insignificant speck of dust floating somewhere west of Baltimore. Well, I'm proud to be a Who, and a town is a town no matter how small. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks today to the Radio Foundation in New York and to Keith Sticklemeyer. You'll find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including a link to send us your original travel haiku or a short entertaining essay about where you live. And be sure to join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Italy and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Italy's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Italian adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.